Hey everybody, welcome to What Are You Doing in Denmark, the podcast where we talk to some of the coolest people in Denmark about what they're doing here. My name is Derek and I'm your host, joined by my co-host Mike. That's right, and today we are excited to be joined by Adrian McKinder. You are a comedian, author, actor, writer, producer, podcaster, and now you get to add to your list guest on Waydid. Welcome here. Uh, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. That is now the top of the list of That's things perfect. that I've done, is yeah. just being on this. <laughs> I mean, chronologically, but hopefully by the end of this, it'll be, you know, yeah, yeah, it'll feel uh, that way too. Way, way did alumnus. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. That's the top of all the tops. Yes. yes. <laughs> Welcome. And thank you for joining us. And, you know, one thing we <clears> like <throat> to do here on What Are You Doing in Denmark is make sure that you're going through the podcast uh, just like with life. It's nice to have a best friend and a BFF. We'll start with a little game, the, the BFF game. And Mike and I are going to ask you a series of questions. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. We've each provided an answer. You're just going to pick the one that feels the most right to you. Okay. Right. And uh, as soon as one of us has uh, earned two correct answers from you, mm-hmm. um, then we'll be BFFs, at least for, for the show. And then after this, you know. Okay. Maybe, you maybe can, in life. Maybe we'll, we'll in life. See, we'll yeah. see how this goes. Yeah. Does like this mean that my treatment will go down in quality if I alienate the the one of you that I don't pick. I think hazing is a big part of it. Yeah. Okay. It could be. But also it could make for an interesting show if like you just suddenly bond with your BFF and just ignore the questions from the other one <laughs> being like, who are you? Like, Why are you? You can't sit with us. Like, yeah, okay. I'm happy to do that. You know? but, uh, no. Although be uh, be careful because we're going to do another version of the game at the end. So oh. perhaps you could have two BFFs. So That's fine. Yeah, be we'll careful. I'm happy to do this. <laughs> let's, let's see how it works. Yeah. So, okay. so we'll start with the first okay. question. We okay. know that you are a history lover. We'll dig mm-hmm. a lot more into that. That as we talk through. We mm-hmm. also love history. We're nerds. I think it's three nerds sitting at the table. Perfectly fine. I wonder yeah. what that smell yeah. was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So if your BFF could bring one historic figure out with us for a night, would you be more impressed if the BFF showed up with Guy Fawkes or Tsar Nicholas II? Well, Guy Fawkes, without question. Why Guy Fawkes? Well, I mean, the gunpowder plot is integral to my history. It was fascinating. Uh, someone famously said that Guy Fawkes was the last man to enter Parliament with honest intentions. Oh! oh. Um, which oh, I'm not saying I agree with that, because it, it, it's a weird one, Bonfire Night, because it's just a case of are we celebrating that they almost succeeded or are we celebrating that they failed? So it, so the Protestants and the Catholics get the best of both. <laughs> I this like guy. that. And, and there's fireworks. Someone loves fireworks. fireworks. Exactly. And, and we got V for Vendetta out of it. Exactly. And those my masks. favorite graphic novel, The Mask. Exactly. Um, yeah, him. And Tsar Nicholas II, he, well, he just failed his country, didn't he? End up yes. Oh. Getting horribly murdered. <laughs> yes. Well, they were both horribly murdered. They were <laughs> but apparently Guy Fawkes, I love this, Guy Fawkes apparently, because he's, he's he was about to be hung, because he's going to be hung, drawn, and quartered. Apparently, he jumped from the scaffold so he would break his neck instantly. We got a bit dark very quickly here, wow. um, yeah. which means that he would be spared the pain and torture of being drawn and quartered. So he was—he was also smart. He went, I'm smart. just going to go out with a snap, I, <laughs> and then he, that was it. So I admire a little gusto, especially during your own execution. That's yes, exactly. right. Showmanship. Showmanship. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, here's the thing: leave a legacy, make it so people talk about you afterwards, and yeah. with that, you and I get one point together. Oh, yeah. I feel this bond. I, so yeah. sorry. <laughs> that, 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 that's okay. okay. That's fine. Oh, sorry you know, about Zar. You know, I just thought it would be nice to. Watch him, you know, yeah, and yeah, I feel yeah. like he he could probably hold his liquor. It'd be a fun night out. Yeah, I think, that's true. You know? I mean, <laughs> All those kids, he's doing something, right? Yeah, you exactly. Know? Okay, yeah, there <laughs> so, are merits. Might, yeah, but yeah. half British, yeah. half Russian, like it's, yeah, yeah. It was uh, a weird thing because he was related to our king at the time of the First say, World yeah. War, and also yes. related to Kaiser Wilhelm. They all had the same the face. Same 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> they had right. the same That face. same kind of dour yeah. English face. And at one point did the three of them just get in a room and go, you know, we're all related. We, yes. all, we all don't get on at right? Christmas, but we do all these people have to die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I feel like there was some commonality. I mean, I, you know, sometimes would argue with my cousins growing up, but never <laughs> right. never on a world war scale. It didn't lead to twenty million deaths. Yeah. Uh, you know, no. we play capture the flag and sometimes, you know, <laughs> get a little, <laughs> a little close to yeah. the bone. But no trench warfare. No. You yeah. know, there's no SOM, is there? <laughs> no. Right. Off the back of the turkey not being cooked. <laughs> no, well oh, yes, either. exactly. No. But um, okay. all right, we'll see if I can maybe rebound here. So we think that a BFF should be historically wise, but also easy to travel with. But mm. sometimes they're not. So okay. uh, if you had mm. to pick between two potential BFFs that had a travel fail in their past, okay. uh, would you be more apt to go along with the guy who uh, one time in Montreal drunkenly fell through a glass coffee table <laughs> or once in uh, Zimbabwe got held at the border due to a passport issue? I would say I would expect everyone to have issues going through Zimbabwe <laughs> security because it's I, and I've read this not my words but I've read it it's, it's quite corrupt as a country a it's bit. been rated a bit <laughs> yes. so I would expect yeah. most people have a bit of trouble I also um, celebrate anyone that can that can plow through furniture intoxicated <laughs> <laughs> and so it has to be falling through a coffee table in Montreal if you can't do it in Montreal where can you do it exactly exactly that's yeah. two for two because wow. that was me. That was wow, awesome. what happened? So, classic story. You go to Montreal for a friend's bachelor party. Oh. And well, in the U.S., that's very popular because you have to be 21 to drink in the U.S., but once you cross the Canadian border, it's time. either 18 or 19, depending exactly. on the province. Yeah. yeah I, I spent, especially, I grew up not far from the Canadian border, so it was very common to have bachelor party. You have a younger brother or something sure. along, so you can go up okay. there and drink. And, and Montreal's fun. Yeah. So, But no, yeah. that, that was me. Talented dancers. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, I have family in Montreal. Do you? Um, yeah, I've never been myself, but I hear it's spectacular. I hear, I hear the furniture's excellent. <laughs> it, it, well, it, it wasn't when Dirty you turn it no. into into sand, as I did. <laughs> no, it was a classic case of like you know sharing a room with with some friends and had to go to the the bathroom. Didn't want to disturb everybody and, and hit the light. And instead, as I was feeling around the room, I went hand first no into into the table. Did you lacerate anything? I have a I still have a scar on my hand from from where I did it. Also fun, kind of a preview for for coming to Denmark. My first experience with socialized medicine. So I cut myself pretty bad and was like, I'm probably going to need stitches. So I go to, to the hospital and I go there and the guy cleans me up or whatever else. And then, then after that, you go to <laughs> kind of the little like cashier stand to go give them your Medicare card, yeah, yeah. the Canadian one. And I was like, nope, I don't have that. I'm, I'm not from there. And like, well, then, then it will cost you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, I thought it was Canada. I thought healthcare was free. They're like, well, for Canadians. But how much was it? Ouch. I don't even remember how much it was. I didn't even, I, I did, so I, I was cleaned out. And I was like, I'll go to CVS in the morning. I'll take care of it myself. <laughs> so I just walked away. <laughs> what? You're just putting some vodka on it. Yeah, it is ethanol, it's alcohol. It's how it started, enough. how it ended. With a little right. bit of vodka on the, yeah. on the hands. Well, I cut the top of my finger off about three weeks ago um, whilst uh, peeling a pumpkin. Oh. So I feel your pain, literally. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, I have to go for that. I'm sorry about you. Oh, no, that's okay. Your, your, but I should have said, what did you expect? <laughs> <laughs> I had a couple extra days in Victoria Falls. It was it okay. was nice. Yeah, there's this thing, um, you know, when I when I first arrived uh, to, to Denmark, the I had the smaller U.S. passport. There's one with 25 pages, and then there's one with 50 pages, I believe. And I had the, the smaller one. And if you live abroad, they automatically give you the, the larger book now. But but at the time, I didn't have that. And it was <clears throat> it was rather full. And <laughs> I didn't have time because of some travels I had before this trip to go and get a, a new password. But I thought, OK, I have enough pages in there. Mm. I, I guess South Africa has this rule 
that you need to have two consecutive blank pages in order to be admitted to the country. Why? I don't know. It's just this like arcane rule that they have. Is that so if they want to backstamp stuff with some paid for trips that didn't exist because I it's putting be. it money in the brown envelope <laughs> to give to an official, you have the space. And, and look, that's exactly what I thought. Because I get to the uh, the boarding desk. They check my passport and he says, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Derek, I cannot let you on the flight. And I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, right. Uh, what's this going to cost me? And he says, no, no, it's not like that. Uh, and then explained the rule. And I, th- then I felt bad. Like, oh, okay. I shouldn't have assumed corruption. Oh, wow. But, <laughs> yeah. And he... <laughs> Just <laughs> pushing money over the table. I'm like, over right, the table. what's it going to take yeah. to get me? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know my friend Benjamin Franklin? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I'm yeah. comfortable with this on the table, but I'm more comfortable if it's on my pocket. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and um, no, it wasn't that. It was just, yeah, these two consecutive blank pages. Wow. I had no idea. And honestly, if I would have been aware of that rule, I would have asked them when I crossed other borders during that trip to put the stamps <laughs> more strategically so that I preserved that. Did not why know. would you know that? Yeah. That's so we had to reroute. It was nice. I had a couple extra days in Victoria Falls. Decided to go bungee jumping, whitewater rafting. I just basically tried to kill myself as many ways as I Do you know what could. would have helped? If you if you had asked there to be a nice glass coffee table just on <laughs> yeah. the right. ground beneath where you bungee jumped. Right. And yeah. you just plunged just into the coffee table, but then back up again. And then right. down again. <laughs> over and over yeah. again. Until <laughs> and then I would have chosen you as my BF. <laughs> right? yeah. You missed that opportunity. I could have done both. Yeah, well, never yeah. mind. You know. oh, so I already won, but let's just see if I can make we can make it three for okay, three over for the here. Hat trick. Yeah. Let's go for the hat trick okay. here. So besides writing for shows, you've also had some pretty cool appearances in front of the camera. I've done some stuff. You've done some <laughs> stuff. You've done some stuff. Now, your BFF has been able to pull some strings and get you some acting gigs on some shows. Would you rather get an acting gig on The Crown or Stranger Things? Well, first thing I would do was uh, fire my agent and hire this friend as my agent. Right? Um, also, this is hypothetical. We do not have these connections. No, but this, is, this, this doesn't change anything. It's a tough one. This is tough, I think, because I, I like both shows for different reasons. I think, and I, and I think both shows started off really strongly and then have tailed off a little mm-hmm. bit over time. True, but I, I think I'd probably be better at doing that standoffish, emotionally closed, <laughs> staring out of a window, pretending, pretending I don't like my relatives vibe of the Crown. So mm. I think I might have to. I think I think I w- I've got the dad bod that would work <laughs> with Stranger Things, but I think I'd look good in a in a, in a three piece suit, just just, just wishing I had different children. <laughs> right, <laughs> and that's essentially the theme that's of the, the theme crown. of the Crown. I, look, I, I like mean, this. sometimes in Stranger things as well. Oh, that's because well, yeah, the kids disappear, true. and really, it's right. only only Winona Ryder's. If only, they mix, if only if those any, kids if, get to do whatever yeah, they want. That, on that is show. true. That is true. But then it's uh, they're in the middle of nowhere. They're in Hawkins. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I think maybe maybe Phil and Liz in the Crown had given their four kids a D and D session and a BMX bike. Yeah, and they just played <laughs> right. that the whole time. Then maybe there wouldn't have been all this fuss, <laughs> right? <laughs> as I've distilled the entire monarchy into a fuss. A fuss. I like. I like. Yeah, I think yeah. the, the the Crown Stranger Things crossover <laughs> yeah. is what would have picked up those middle seasons. <laughs> that, yeah, would it be the Crown? Stranger Things have happened. Yeah, right. There we go. But also true. Yeah, like exactly. it is, it's they're both. You could call the crown Stranger Things, yeah. and it would have mm. been the same result. I think know. you're absolutely right. So I'm going to go cr- I, with a heavy heart. I have to say the crown. Okay, so we go three for three. We get the head. Wow. That's it. Yeah. Wow. So, so, so for well, the guys, crown, I'm just going to head out then. Right. I, I leave you to. I to absolutely it. don't blame you. <laughs> I feel really bad. Yeah. Now, well, I, I feel I, really I, insulted. Yeah, no, no, no. I love Stranger Things. Yeah. I would probably. I think when the dust settled, I'd probably revisit that more than the crown. Mm. I, I find it yeah. weird now we got to the point in the crown where we're, we're at the point which I remember. Right. You know, right. so I, I'm growing up in the UK seeing all that stuff happen, particularly when, you know, in the 90s and the new series is going to be all about, you know, when it all goes wrong for Diana in Paris. Mm. Um, and I remember all that. And my mum came in in the morning. I'd just flown back from the US. 
So I was really, really wiped and jet lagged. And my mum came in in the morning. She swung open the door. I was a teenager. She went, Have you heard the news? <laughs> I was like, What? <laughs> and she went, Diana's died. And I went, Oh. And then rolled her room back. <laughs> I thought someone I knew might have died. <laughs> like your right. neighbour. Yeah, but it was a really weird thing because I'd been away for three months and missed the whole soap opera that the media circus had sure. driven. They'd, they'd created this narrative, as the press do, where we had Dodie and Diana were together. She'd finally found happiness with mm. this man. And then it ended, obviously, horrifically with tragedy in Paris. But it's weird because they're going to do all that. It's been interesting to see how they do it. Yeah, and relive it. And <laughs> well, I'm sorry. That's okay. You know, I, I, I was hoping for a pity point there. But, you know, Stranger Things is... It's great. I, and I do love the 80s nostalgia of it. But, I prefer yeah. it, but I think I'll be better in The Crown. Sure. sure. That's oh, that my reasoning. Sense. Yeah, okay. I think your British accent would kind of stand out in Hawkins. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe you could be like the, the English teacher in the high school. That's the kind of role that you could have I, I think so. I'd be the one who would have no truck with any of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. What's all this hubbub, this hullabaloo? <laughs> What's all going on here? <laughs> You're doing what with a who in the basement? Unbelievable. I would actually like to see that. Yeah, I, I think, think we, they do need a British character. on. You know, we, we've teased uh, a little bit of your bio and, and what you're doing in Denmark mm. but uh, it's maybe not Hawkins but could you tell us maybe a little bit about your path here yeah yeah I mean I'm I uh, you know I've talked about this when I do stand-up and stuff I'm, I'm what's called a sexual migrant you know <laughs> I, I met a Dane and we had sex and now I'm stuck here um, but no more detail it's uh, yeah my wife is uh, is Danish I met her in in London very strange with her <laughs> her mum was dating my uncle Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, my uncle lived in Copenhagen for many years. He's a hairdresser. He has a hair salon in the center of town. And he was dating uh, this woman. And he came over to London. We, we were quite close and um, still are. And uh, said, do you want to come uh, to go out for a curry? And uh, I thought it was just going to be me and him meeting. And he didn't tell me, because he's very bad at communicating, my uncle, <laughs> that he brought with him his current girlfriend and her family, which is her oh, son and daughter. And the chemistry was on the table, and we clicked. And um, within... Three months of meeting, she'd uh, moved to London. Oh, wow. Within six months, we were engaged. Within a year, we were married. And within 18 months, my son was on the way. And that is why we moved here, because um, we couldn't afford to keep living in London mm -hmm. and upscale. I should point out that my uh, my mother-in-law, as she is now, is not still dating my uncle. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Uh, it's fine. It's amicable. And it would be really weird if they were. That would be. So my uncle would be my father-in-law. Yes. And oh. I want to point out that it's not, it's, the family tree isn't a stump. <laughs> right. There's no blood there. Can yes, I point that right. out? That was just, right. you know. Um, but uh, yeah, so we realized when we realized that two were going to become three, we couldn't afford to get a bigger place in where we wanted to live in London. Sure. Uh, at the time, I was freelance. Uh, I'm a writer; is my bread and butter. So I can do that anywhere. So long before the pandemic, I was used to that world. I was mm -hmm. used to, you know, staring at my own reflection in the oven door. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I was happy to move wherever. And I'd been to Copenhagen before to visit my uncle, mm. and I've been a few times. And I knew I liked it. And um, and so we we thought we'd give this a go. So that was in September 2015. Um, so that's how I, I came over here. And then now my son came along in December that year, and then my daughter came along. Uh, three and a half years later so mm -hmm. that was the journey and I kept doing work again it's the whole thing sort of precursor before people had to do this with the pandemic you know I was still working for a, a, an international company mm -hmm. for two and a half years of living here so I didn't work for a Danish company at all I was still working 100% remotely for Discovery Channel actually. Oh, okay yeah. I was doing their social media writing their their, their content yeah. for that and um, I used to go over there once a week um, sorry, carbon footprint back in the day. It was not great. <laughs> and have a meeting, you know, because it was before Zoom, but it was still there. And then I'd come back here and I'd do all my work here. 
Was Did it? they know that you were in Denmark? Or oh, was yeah, this they kind did. of I started, on the slide? I, I, well, I was worried I'd lose the job. Right. So oh, I, sure. I always have props to them for being open-minded and go, well, mm. it doesn't matter. And I remember my, my manager at the time said, well, it doesn't matter that you're there because you were coming in you know, once a week anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, they are in West London, I was in North London. Yeah. And it made no difference. They said, well, we'll just carry on because we're still delivering the, 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 sure, the writing. Yeah. So, yeah, no, they, they were great. And so I'd started it there and then they let it continue. And then it came to a natural end because they suddenly it all moved to video content primarily. Sure. Ah, okay. And I wasn't providing that. Uh, I, I'm amazed it lasted as long as it did. I remember the phone call. Went, um, Adrian, I'm high. It's, uh, it's like, oh, I know what this is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's almost like those noir movies where the police turn up at the door and you just open the door and go, what took you so long? Right. <laughs> you know, we have to let you go. Like, yeah, I knew this was coming. It's like, fine. Thank you. Something's dead. Yeah. So yeah. It's your, exactly. your, your employment <laughs> with us. Right. Yeah. I was like, that's fine. I don't do video content. You need people to do video. Sure. So then I had to sort of inward face and start finding work over here. Mm-hmm. Always writing. And then I sort of continued the performing, as I've always done, and actually dialed it up a lot more because I, I stopped doing stand-up in the UK. I still did a bit of acting. And then I started doing it again here when I went to an international comedy night. And I realized what a lovely audience it was. And I think it's because there's a huge community of expats, regardless of where you're from, who feel shut out because they can't go and see entertainment that's in a language they understand. Sure. Right? Sure. So they go to this, and, and the audience is so pleased to be there. There's what they're, they're what I call a wedding crowd. So they're just mm-hmm. happy to be there. They're really supportive. It's not like the classic bear pit, US or UK stand-up <laughs> club where they're sitting in their arms full and go, "All right, you fucker, make me laugh." Yeah. Right? It's none of that. They're just happy to be there. And so I started doing that regularly, and I've been doing that ever since. And then I started doing improv, American-style yeah. long-form improv, which I'd never done, and I learned that entirely here. Yeah. So that's basically what my dynamic is. It's writing sometimes for people sometimes for me, and then doing the performing as well. To go back further, how, I, how was your origin? How did you get into to comedy and writing <clears throat> in, in the very first place? Like, this, was, it, was this a life ambition you had when you were a kid or something you kind of fell into? Well, I always loved comedy. Like a always glass coffee it. table. Exactly. Yeah, I fell into the glass <laughs> coffee table. People talk about a glass ceiling. I'm talking about <laughs> a glass coffee table of comedy where you can only go down <laughs> no. hard. Right. And there are scars. I get stitched up by exactly. a Canadian. Exactly. <laughs> Pouring gin on my hand. <laughs> Um, no, I was. Um, I always loved comedy. I was a geek. I used to record stuff off the TV and, and uh, video it, showing my age, and we'd play. I'd play it back, and and I remember me and my sort of my best friend. Uh, we would record. We had Monty Python, uh, you know, s- scripts on in the books, and we'd, we'd record ourselves doing the sketches and things like that. And and I went to the same school as one of Monty Python years ago, so it was sort of embedded in the DNA. It was like part of the ah. curriculum. So it's like you do know that Terry Jones and Monty Python went to your school. I was like, what? <laughs> And I was got into comedy properly when I was about 11. I snuck in. My sister and her friends were watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail mm. and video. And I got found out by laughing behind the sofa. I heard <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I remember then seeing Life of Brian at Christmas with a friend's house. And, and it was one of those things where I didn't know things could be that funny. Because mm. I'd grown up always enjoying watching stuff that made me laugh, be it cartoons or Saturday night entertainment. But this was something like, this is... It was like another level mm. and stuff that made me laugh. And then so I just became a comedy geek. So I would always ask for, I remember asking for stand-up videos for Christmas and stuff. So the various comedians at the time that I grew up with that I was just obsessed with. And always comedy movies like Ghostbusters is my favorite film of all time. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, I know it inside out. And it, there's something, but it was the first film I saw in the cinema that wasn't a cartoon in 1984 when I was six. It was the first film we videoed off the TV the year we got a VHS recorder in 1987. That was the only thing <laughs> oh, I wow. had. So we watched, I watched it back and forth, back and forth. And uh, yeah, it's just always had a, there's something about that film that just everything, I just think it's perfect. Everything works. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's one of those you know, lightning in a bottle things. Yeah. You know, as they've proven by when they try and sort of reboot it and, and it remake it. Work. it just doesn't work. And then... It was watching a terrible sitcom 
on BBC TV, and I decided I could. I, I really think I could do better than this. Not out of arrogance, ah. just out of frustration. I thought I can't believe this is being commissioned. Mm-hmm. So I started getting into, and then I act, and then I started working in TV, and I thought, well, I'm in. I'm in through the door, so I could start pitching stuff to people in the company. And it's actually much more difficult because you get labeled as what you're hired to do. Yeah. So oh. they go, well, we're not going to give him anything because he's just Adrian that works in the web team. Right. Oh, he's to... just a writer. Oh, yeah, he's yeah, just, yeah, a... yeah. He's just okay. this. Like, yeah. He's just the guy that, that changes the images in Photoshop. You know? huh. So it's actually harder in a way. And um, But I sort of kept plugging away, and um, I eventually got a job working in uh, Comedy Central. And I was um, working with the web team, and we just pitched some ideas to make some comedy shorts, sort of short-form content. And they were great. They just said, well, yeah, fine. Here's a small amount of money. Go and make it. It was like the oldest. This is amazing. And we also started recording a series of... I, I was doing uh, producing podcasts in, like, in 2012, 2013, the very beginning of it, this comedy podcast with these two comedians. And uh, there was a nice little circle to this where one of the guests we got was Terry Jones of Monty Python. Oh, wow. And I remember being in his kitchen in the afternoon, and he was like, would you care for a Prosecco, Adrian? <laughs> and I was thinking, if I could tell the 11-year-old me that gone to that right. school, like, that I'd be in his kitchen, he'd be handing me a glass of Prosecco, and we recorded with him. And sadly, he passed away because he got this form of dementia. And when we were recording it, he said his memory was starting to go. So mm. the early signs were already mm. there. Um, but that was a full circle moment and a pinch wow. me moment. Yeah, and it's just been... I've. I've been kind of doing stuff for myself and doing stuff for other people in order to do it's like one for money two for the show I think it's a really good phrase because you're constantly trying to make stuff to get money so you can do stuff for you that's a passion product Mm, 100% yeah so that's the root I'm always a comedy geek and uh, now I get to, you know, I've been doing it a long time on both sides of the camera. So Yeah. yeah. Which do you prefer? Because um, it's probably a different, uh, a different skill set, of course, and maybe scratches a different itch for you. <clears throat> but d- do you find it more rewarding or enriching doing sort of the uh, creative process and the, the writing or getting to do the uh, on camera work? Well, the on camera stuff feeds the ego. Sure. The stuff on stage feeds the ego. I find it interesting that I do improv and stand up yeah. because I've encountered a lot of people feel they're mutually exclusive. And there's a lot of rivalry between the camps. And I think that's utter nonsense because I think they feed into each other very well. Mm. Like certainly doing improv has really helped my emceeing. Where the sure. All crowd work is yeah, improv. Yeah, all crowd work is improv. And it's the principles of improv. So it's, yeah. pr- it's active listening. It's being mindful. It's you know taking time to, you know, to respond and respond positively to keep the energy positive in a room whilst having fun with them. I, I love doing both for different things. I think, I think stand-up ticks the three. So t- stand-up has the performing... Um, and the improv and the writing hmm. right and I love doing improv mm. but improv just has the performing and the improv so if you think of it like a triangle so there's one thing missing from improv and because I'm a writer first and foremost I'll always enjoy that but that also comes with the challenge where you get frustrated if you've written some some material written a bit that you think is really good and then it dies because mm-hmm. uh, you, you know you always it always dies and then somebody doing improv can just get up there yeah yeah <laughs> hear the word lemon and create exactly. something that kills and but, you're like damn I know <laughs> but but then audiences are different stand up sure. audiences are much more oh, cynical yeah. and they sit there they have an expectation sure. back to yeah. what I said earlier improv crowds are like we don't know what's going to happen you know yeah. what's going let's see and find out so they're a little more a little more forgiving yeah much more forgiving yeah. sure I think bad improv is worse than bad stand up I find I, I find them both insufferable to watch, and I've both been, I've been guilty of both. I should add, <laughs> sure, <in my> time. <laughs> yeah, but right. I find bad improv. I just have to leave a room. Yes, um, but uh, because the audience is so forgiving, it's like come on. But bad stand-up, I think you can kind of go. You can maybe see what they're trying to do. I mean, the only downside of 
of it is it becomes what we call in, in England, I don't know if this phrase exists in the US, we call it a busman's holiday, which is when you do something mm. for a living, you don't want to do it on, on in your own time. Mm. So people will go, hey, we're going to go oh. to a comedy club at the weekend, do you want to come? It's like, absolutely not. <laughs> right. right. But then the other side of it is I can watch a comedian who I absolutely love and still not crack a smile because I'll just be going, oh, that was brilliant. That yeah. was excellent. Sure. Was, you're, you're watching it almost more as a critic. Yeah, you're watching the technique. You fan. see what they did. Yes. You see the structure and you see the jokes and you see how it works and it can some take the fun out of it. Mm. So when I do see a, co a comedian that just makes me laugh like a fan, then I know it's something special. Yeah. But yeah, I think to answer your question, which I realize I didn't, <laughs> um, I would say they have different strengths and benefits which I enjoy the most. And I'm lucky that I get to do all of it. Sure. Mm. Like the writing I love, but it's also very solitary. I mean, writing books, you know, I'm up in my office in the attic for, you know, hours over a period of months. Sure. And you, I can come down feeling a bit strange. <laughs> and, the, and my family certainly point that out. Sure. So I, always, I always thank them at the beginning of the book for putting up with me. Right, you know. <laughs> and what's that process like? Because just to, I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, your books because we were uh, <clears throat> wanted to get into that. So the the first book that you have out, um, can you tell us a little bit? I know it's about Stan Lee and Marvel, but also so much more beneath the cover. Well, that was the thing. I didn't want to do a biography. Yes. I want to, I realized what's interesting is that Stan Lee, um, he was, you know, at the forefront of American popular culture as it evolved from the 30s till 2018 right. when he died. So I thought, well, this is a great way to use his eyes as a prism through which you can see the evolution of popular culture. Hmm. So the book is is, is using his life to frame the fact that I then go into these kind of tangents talking about the, the death of uh, Music Hall and the rise of radio and the comedy that was on the radio and what influenced his his style, then going into the you know c cinema and, and then the birth of TV and um, then the birth of you know the internet. And he was had his hand in all this stuff to greater or lesser extent. Him and um, and I think that you know and then you see the 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 correlation between as Marvel comics developed they would they would change to reflect the times that were going on mm. so you know so that's why the, the superheroes that were created in the seventies were a bit more darker and edgier because America in the seventies was pretty dark and grubby yeah. post war yeah. Vietnam and, yeah. it was it was a bit broken. You know, whereas the 60s was away, yeah. you get, you know, Iron Man and, and the Avengers. And, and the, the post-war period, I think that's where, like, Captain America Yeah, and that was the only and, Marvel character yeah. that wasn't created in the, 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 the mainstay. It was this purple patch between, like, 61 and 65 where all of them were created by this little hub of creatives in Marvel. So Stanley marshalling people like Jack Kirby and, um, and Steve Ditko. So it's so weird from 60. So Captain America was, was created as like war propaganda. Right. So oh, that, right. that was, he I was didn't the, yeah, he was yeah. the only one. So he was yeah. like 1940. Okay. And it was created by it was Sim, like Simon. Fascist, right? Yeah, it was very. He was, like, was him socking old Adolf in the yes, jaw. Yeah. You know, so that was created oh. and, and, it, and it flew off the shelves because all the sure. GIs were reading it when they're overseas. Um, and it was, you know, that was that that wasn't Stan at all because he was like a teenager. He just started working for the company, so that was um, that was Jack Kirby and, okay. and and Simon. When he took over and become the editor, sixty one, it's astonishing. To sixty five, you basically got the Fantastic Four, you've got Hulk, you've got Iron Man, you've got Thor, you've got the X the X Men, and I think the Avengers premiered in the same month. We wow, got number one. Um, Spider-Man, of course, Doctor Strange, all those ones that were just the center of the MCU back when the MCU was good. Um, they were all just creating this five-year window uh, of just this purple patch of creativity. That's incredible. And it's like uh, like Dolly Parton wrote Jolene and um, 
I will always love you. And I will always love you on the same day within really? like two hours. Yeah. I love that yeah. stuff when like, you find out about it, you know? <laughs> so just imagine having like that stroke of yeah. like, creativity of like Stanley or Dolly Parton in those yeah, two yeah. instances. Like, can but I, I just I, get a little bit of that for exactly. <laughs> over but, a year? But I always want to stress because it's people, for all the fans of Stanley, he has a lot of detractors because he was a mm. bit of a showman and a hack. Sure. And there's always been debate about how much involvement he had in creating it. Uh. He was the editor. Some would say he came up with all of it and he made the other guys draw it. The others said, no, the, the, the artists were the ones who came up with everything and he just mm -hmm. basically signed it off. He was the marketing guy. Yeah. He was the face and, of it. And he was the face of it. And he, ha he was a brilliant marketeer. And I think that was his true talent. And he mm -hmm. had the gift of the gab and he had the face. So he was the face of Marvel. Mm -hmm. And he made some pretty smart decisions throughout its tumultuous career to get to that point. Mm -hmm. But you must never forget that essentially people like, you know, Jack Kirby and, and Steve Ditko were just, they were just, they were just as talented, if not more so in different areas. And it was together, this, sure. this melting of creativity. So that was the book. I didn't want to do a biography. I wanted to just tell the story of, of 20th century entertainment. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, how was the experience for you? Because it's and you're basically telling the story of American entertainment. You're mm. a Brit. What perspective do you think you brought being from the other side of the pond? It's same language, but different culture and to some extent and to, and to, and to kind of critique it that way. Yeah. I mean, I think the lens I would be able to put, and I think I achieved it, um, um, was was sort of a bit of detached humor and a sure. bit of cynicism. Like I was very mindful not to fall on one side. I read, um, a, there was a book that unfortunately for me about Stan Lee that came out at the same time no. with a really hefty marketing push by a prop, you know, big publishing company. And I read it and I thought it was basically just a hit piece on Stan Lee. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, I, and I actually thought it was really lazy. I won't mention the name of it or the author, but I, I was, having done my own research, I thought he decided Stan Lee was a liar, a crook and a hack. Mm -hmm. And he just perpetuated that throughout. And then sometimes the arguments were kind of, they were either a bit ad hominem or they were a bit inconclusive or just, bit, it was just, I thought it was just, it, it clearly had an agenda. Right. Starting with a narrative <clears throat> and then just yeah, and trying to convince Finding the evidence the to fit in. Yeah. It's, it's that confirmation bias based yeah, on a grand yeah. scale. And I was very mindful of saying, this is what we know. This mm -hmm. is what we don't know. Read into that what you will. Hmm. So this is what some of the people said. This is what Stan said. And then we look at the author, you know, this is where being a historian helps because then you look at, well, where did that evidence come from? Is it primary? Is it secondary? Who said it? Why are they saying it? What's their agenda? So I presented that. I also was happy, as I said, to put some humor into it. I want all my books, of, regardless of what they're about, they, they have comedy running through it because mm. I think that there's a danger to be very... Um, I love you guys. I love America very much. But I think <laughs> there's, a, there's a tendency America can take itself Here we go. seriously. I think sometimes mm. oh, sure. it can be quite sort of, you know, earnest. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be, I always wanted to do a little wink to the camera because that's what Stan's writing was. If you sure. read his editorial in his Marvel comics, there was always a wink to the audience. Mm. That was one of his strengths, creating this community, you know. Um, and so I wanted to do that. So there was always a little bit of tongue in cheek about the writing. So that, mm, that was, okay. what I think, brought to it. But it struck me. Um, you know that you mentioned trying to include that in in your writing your your second book which i believe comes out in january, january. is that right january 30th now i'm i'm excited <laughs> for this and we'll we'll talk about <clears throat> the topic because i'm just trying to square that peg of uh, writing writing <laughs> oh, humorously on, on the topic of your second book uh, which is Death in the Victorian Death in the Victorians right so yeah. hilarious oh brilliantly <laughs> funny um I don't know. I think there's always comedy to be found in certain situations. Sure. It's like um, one bit uh, as an aside, you know, I do it. There's a chapter on it about ghosts and, and the rise of sort of, you know, the spiritualism, the spiritualist right. movement that came out in the Victorian age in the 19th century. And I think, you know, part of that is because 
it, it, it's partly because something a chap called Darwin came along and kind mm. of blew a hole in religion for mm. many. But then, what's an interesting question is why didn't the Victorians become atheists? Mm-hmm. Is because they had yeah. a lot of people could square ghosts, believing in ghosts, with conventional religion, and also a lot of people had to believe in something. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't like. You know, it takes a lot of guts and balls to go. You know what? When I die, I rot, and that's it. Right. So it's nice to believe. Well, maybe when we do go, there is something out there afterwards. Now, I'm not saying we go to heaven, but maybe we go to some astral plane. It's also, I think, we're in. You know, our, our human instinct is to be a little bit more narcissistic to think yeah, yeah. that, like, this can't be. Oh it. wait, this is not it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have so much more. You to need do. me around, yeah. <laughs> even if that me around is limited to just knocking books off shelves. <laughs> yeah, right. That was you me. Know. That was me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I chose that book. To yes. So I think that. So for example, but the point is, you can't not laugh at these things. There was um, there was a belief in a ghost of a, uh, there's a ghost chicken that's supposed to haunt this square up in Highgate, North London, where I used to live, that used to belong to Francis Bacon, uh, who wasn't Victorian. Um, he's a sort of philosopher, scientist, but not the artist. There's another Francis Bacon. But I love the fact that they perpetuated this myth that there is a spectral chicken <laughs> mm-hmm. and roaming around. So what am I supposed to do with that information? Right. Like, should I see it? Am I supposed to run away? Do I hear it? Yeah. Exactly. Is it going to attack me? Yes. It Will phantom, it possess me? Yes. <laughs> phantom plucking. Is it just a ploy from Kentucky Fried Chicken? It, exactly. It's, right. just exactly. it's a marketing ploy. Yeah. Yeah. That's all but it all is. these stories come out, and there's always these side things to it. And um, there was a thing, Victorians had this thing about ghost flash mobs where people would hear there was a sighting of someone. There was several happening in Bermondsey in East London. And they would, this is all pre-social media. So they'd mm. get together and hundreds of people would swarm to a location, sometimes in the dead of night, just in the off chance they might see this ghost. Oh, wow. um, and, you know, there's so many interesting, a bit of background where I've jumped ahead, but like I said, death in the Victorians, this came from, I did a uh, master's postgraduate degree in Victorian culture. Okay. I, I, as I said, I love my history. And I just kept going back to death with the things I was choosing to write about. And I thought there is such an interesting narrative about this. And it's basically um, the Victorian age was an attempt in a nutshell for the living to reconnect with the dead. Because in the Industrial Revolution, too many people were dying in these big cities. Mm-hmm. So the, graves, the graveyards were filling up, literally bodies coming out of the ground. There was disease. There was infection. People couldn't go and pay their respects to their loved ones because there were sometimes, you know, families, huge families, and they're all dying. The child, you know, child mortality was very high. There was cholera. There were all these epidemics. And so the Victorian age was an attempt to reconnect the living with the dead. Hmm. So that's why you get the birth of the beautiful garden cemetery. They go, you know, they closed down the, in London, they closed down the churchyards. Mm-hmm. You can't bury people in there anymore. Don't go anywhere near them. Um, but we're going to make these beautiful landscaped, you know, classical influence cemeteries on a hill mm-hmm. looking over the city and you can go there and it's somewhere you want to spend time. But also you can pay your respect to your loved ones. Mm-hmm. And death became this ceremony, this ritual where you get these wonderful extravagant gravestones that you'll see in these cemeteries. There were seven built in London within a very short window of each other that was commissioned just to ha- cope with it. You know, you've got Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, which, is, which was the inspiration for the stuff in London, which is beautiful. So there was all these attempts to, to reconnect death. Um, death became a spectacle. Um, very quickly, I have to tell you, this is, this is the kind of thing you'll find in the book. Um, <laughs> um, behind Notre Dame Cathedral, there was the Paris morgue. Mm-hmm. And they opened it up to the public because so many bodies were being fished out of the Seine. They needed, the police needed help identifying these anonymous corpses. Mm-hmm. What they didn't see coming was it became a sideshow. And literally tens of thousands of people a day, families, would go to the Paris morgue to stare at the corpses. It was death as spectacle. What? Every morning, 
there was a big velvet curtain and they pulled back the curtain and revealed these cadavers on a stone slab each. Mm-hmm. That they and pulled they, out of the river. Well, or they found somewhere around oh, Paris. The street so it became and a thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they'd have a narrative, so people would be queuing out of the building around the block. And they'd have these signs on the wall painting a narrative like, you're about to see. It was like it's almost, you know, Chamber of Horrors. Code. You're <laughs> yeah. about to see so-and-so who was found in an alley. Who were they? Who killed them? You know, warning, this is not for the faint-hearted. You know, all that kind of stuff. Right. And what's interesting is it was this little window where it was that popular, one of the hmm. big popular. T- Charles Dickens was obsessed with the Paris Morgue. He wrote that whenever I'm in Paris, I have to go there. <laughs> I'm compelled to go to the Paris I hate it, but I have to go there. And then it closed down because of sanitary reasons at the well, turn of the century, as you'd expect. And the building's gone. And there's not a shred of it that remains. So if you walk to Paris now behind Notre Dame Cathedral, you'd be walking out and you would have no idea that this building was there. Wow. There was the tourist attraction of Paris in the, uh, in the mid to late 19th century. And it's these little things that I stumbled upon. I thought, this is fascinating. How, how do you, because I think, in my mind, I think of the Victorians as a very prudish era. It's an era that you have all these kind of... Yeah social rituals that you have to do like it's everyone's very <coughs> kind of etiquette and, yeah. and covered up and we don't talk about different things like that like but were they just covering up something deeper yeah, yeah. i think that like any other period in history it, it's there's elements of both sure it's like you flip that on its head you talk about the 60s right if you talk to my parents who lived through the 60s they go well there was none of that permissive society going on everyone's like free love and hippies yeah. and stuff. they weren't they were just getting about their day going to work being as <laughs> buttoned up as British as possible. <laughs> but we know the narrative of the 60s sure. is free love, permissive society, Woodstock, all that kind of thing. But I think, so flip that reverse, I think, yeah, I think there was all sorts of debauchery going on in Victorian culture behind closed doors. There are various mm. occult societies, you know, um, like the the Golden Dawn where Alistair Crowley was a member and, and, you know, who knows what was going on there. There was lots of occult societies. There was always always you know the the you know the bordellos and the, and the oh, houses yeah. of sure. repute you look at you know all all the main narratives of the victorian age you know ending cul- culminate arguably with something like jack the ripper which is all of which is a morality tale about the wages of sin because these were terrible prostitutes right. you know that's why they were killed and oh, there's a whole chapter about why jack the ripper didn't exist another thing he he was basically a, a construct by the press uh, uh. All the, the narrative of Jack the Ripper that we have is entirely uh, fictional. All we can say for certain is that some women were tragically killed. Hmm. We can't even say one person. Which did. probably happened for all the decades all, in yeah, that era. Uh, well, yeah. Because it, yeah. it was a deprived part of London. It, sure. was, it was really dangerous. Police didn't want to go in there. Yeah. And it happened all the time, but this narrative was cooked up. And that's the narrative that stays with us. Point is, I think that pe- the Victorians were buttoned up, but they were also happy to do whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just like any other era. That's like, and I think Michel Foucault writes about it. In his history of sexuality, he writes about how there's a myth that the Victorians were buttoned up. They mm-hmm. actually were just down for whatever. Yeah. <laughs> they just, you know, th- there was a sense of, you know, there was a religious awakening with the sort of the Methodist movement and, the, and, the, and all that. There's, mm. th- there is a, there's a, what's interesting, in a nutshell, the Victorian period marks a, a sort of a shift from the, the sort of the, uh, the, mel- the romantic sort of enlightenment period with the rational sort of t- modern age. And mm-hmm. I think that period in history, that's what happens. It's sort of they, they clash. So it's, it's this sort of romantic sort of time of the, sem- of the 18th century mm-hmm. and then building up to the 20th century. So science and reason are clashing hugely with faith and belief. Sure. Sure. I mean, uh, the whole world is changing. The Industrial Revolution. Yeah. In a very I mean, short period of time. Very short. Time. Very yeah. short. Any social change. Up. Yeah. You know, it couldn't keep up with it, which is why there was a big problem with death. Yeah. Because they couldn't build new housing. Um, to cope with the sheer number of people that were moving from the villages to the towns for work. Mm. 
and then everyone was dying and they just didn't know what to do with it. Right. So, they had all this mechanization <clears throat> and automation in factories, but yeah. didn't have any kind of safety protocol or OSHA regulations or anything to keep people safe on the job. Again, exactly. contributing to the death. Yeah, okay. totally. Exactly. It's like with AI now, but it's now white collar <laughs> jobs that are under threat. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. There wasn't a writer's strike. There was just the Paris morgue. Yes, like exactly. Yeah. Go there and stare at some people, <laughs> you know. But uh, I know I thought it was a fascinating subject and I'm, it was a tough book to write, not just because some of the stuff was kind of dark. I look at all the invent, how they applied science to handle death. Like say, mm. so there's a lot of death photography. There's a chapter on that. And yeah. how, so, you know, there are things that we would find really macabre, like taking photos of your dead kids. Oh. you know which they would do and put them on the wall but they would consider that perfectly normal because mm -hmm. they go well most people can't afford a photo photograph so chances are you know if we're going to spend money on a photograph it might as well be the last the one last we one can. to remember right. oh, God. you know yeah. all these kind of things so um we find that really macabre <laughs> but they go well that's just what we did that was our port that was our memento mori right right but mm. it was kind of dark to be in that world for a year and a half mm. i can imagine yeah yeah but i find it fascinating and I'm, I'm proud of the book i i it was um so i'm looking forward to when it comes out i can't yeah i'm i'm excited to and it, is it available for pre-order now or it is, is that, okay. it is it's it's uh, i noticed it is they didn't tell me <laughs> <laughs> i found out by mistake um, but it is out uh available for pre-order yeah we'll keep uh looking out for your book in january Yes. And uh, can you tell everybody where we can find you? Um, well, you can find me on, on social media. I'm on Instagram, Adrian underscore McKinder, M-A-C-K-I-N-D-E-R. Um, uh, you can see me on stage throughout Copenhagen and indeed Denmark and other countries. I perform stand-up and I'm also part of an improv duo uh, called If These Walls Could Talk. We have an Instagram page called Walls Improv. It's with uh, uh, Sarah McGillan, who is hands down the best improv performer in Denmark, possibly anywhere. Brilliant. And I'm, and I'm honored that she's my improv partner. She's also my best friend in this city. Let's take a break and we'll be back in everyone's feed with part two of our time together next week. And we'll also be sharing more of our conversation on our YouTube channel. And if you're enjoying What Are You Doing in Denmark, we have one more tiny favor. Please give our show a rating or review on whatever podcast platform you're using so that others will find us too. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.